think I heard a baby amen back there somewhere. It's always good to hear. Let's take our Bibles and go back to the book of Job this morning. Praise God for all of our instruction in song this morning. And thank you for those of you who invest extra time to make sure we're all instructed in song. That's a tremendous blessing to, to us as a church family. And we'll ever be thankful for those things. Um, I want to let you know that uh, beginning today, the sun will start to set after 6 o'clock every day. So that's good. And uh, some of you already knew that. And what that means is that Picnic in the Potters in June is just right around the corner. So we'll be able to have a post, whatever the last two years have been celebration at our home, we're looking forward to having you all back uh, in June for sure. Uh, tonight, Pastor Mark will be preaching for us tonight, a prayer devotional. Uh, before we go to prayer, we'll have an hour-long service tonight. And uh, we will provide for you some refreshments right after the service. You don't have to stay. You can take those refreshments with you, or you can stay and fellowship together tonight. Uh, but from 6 to 7 o'clock, Pastor Mark will preach, and uh, we'll look forward to having a continued emphasis on our prayer time in the month uh, of February. I'm so glad Pastor Mike mentioned that our fellowship time and our greeter group is has been and is gathered back now together to, to just be uh, normal. We don't want a new normal of fellowship. We want the old normal of fellowship back. And uh, so I would just encourage all of you, so many of you, uh, before the last 24 months, were so engaging with each other. And we cautioned that on a number of different levels over time. I would just encourage you to, to only be cautious with those who ask you to be and respect that but if not let's just get back to greeting each other in the Lord and let's get back to weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and let's just be the people of God to one another and proactively so uh, all of you are and have been so wonderful at being that um, encouraging uh, person to guests to those in our church who need that encouragement and I want you to know as your pastor I'm back full strength at that and I'm not uh, and I'm going to respect those who want me to be cautious but other than that I'm just I'm just going to start loving just like I always had before so um, I encourage you to do the same you're a wonderful body and I want you to start now to look up to look around you uh, and to begin to pray and ask the Lord once again. Um, and I think you'd be amazed uh, in, a, in, a, in a sobering way who the Lord would put on your heart to encourage when the preaching's over and we're, and we're exiting. If you just sat there right now with your eyes wide open and said, Lord, lay on my heart someone to be an encouragement to. Um, he'll do that. And you say, oh, Lord, you, 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 gave my heart, you gave a burden on my heart for someone. I don't know their name. It doesn't matter. You prayed, and he answered. <laughs> Go be that encouragement to that person. And let's continue to, to stride back to uh, those natural ways that God's people uh, love each other uh, in a church body. 
We do have a baptism coming up in two weeks. Praise the Lord. And if you have yet had the opportunity to follow the Lord in obedience and baptism since you've been saved, please let us know. Um, we'd love to help you. Blessed baptism this month. Uh, have one in March. And God willing, maybe the Lord will continue to give us new birth and we'll have one every month of the year. Um, and if you, want to, if you don't want to wait till the second week because you're so burdened to obey, well, then we'll have it next week. All right? Let's just let you obey and... And we'll look forward to that opportunity as well. I want to congratulate Jason and Rebecca. Would you stand? These folks are a newly married couple in our church. We'd like to give them a round of applause and congratulate them. They're new additions to our first five years class as of this morning. And so I asked them permission to embarrass them and he gave me a thumbs up. And uh, we love you both. We've been praying for you and look forward to having you. Uh, it's a continual part of our body at this place in your time, in your life right now. And we're proud of you guys. And thank you for um, being part of us. You may be seated and congratulations to you. Evan and Sarah, where are you? Are you in the auditorium? Evan and Sarah? I did not ask their permission to embarrass them. <laughs> and hopefully we'll see them back again next Sunday. Um, but Evan, do you have anything you'd like to share with everybody? No? Yay! I'm assuming that was... I mean, that wasn't a closed group that you had the gender revealed to, was it? Was that open to public? Okay, so, okay. Because it's too late now. But... Congratulations to you guys, and thank you for letting me uh, celebrate that and, um, with the flock today. Did you folks know that the, the country that sends the most uh, church planters and missionaries out for the gospel's sake in all of Europe is the Ukraine? Uh, missiologists have been telling us this for almost a decade now. I'm having lunch tomorrow with a PhD professor who's transitioned back to the States from one of the largest seminaries in Ukraine. Um, and I think we need to take a moment this morning just to pray uh, publicly that God would uh, protect this country and protect God's people in that country uh, because... Again, out of all the European countries, for some reason, God the Spirit has moved in that country to see hundreds and hundreds of Ukrainian men and women come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the influence of American missionaries, but mostly through the influence of Ukrainian pastor teachers and full-time vocational workers. Their seminaries and their Bible colleges are full. And they, they've been actively sending out hundreds to their own country and countries around them. And you understand what's happening internationally now. And we have a, a world dictator that certainly needs to be born again. Um, but a world dictator that hates the work of God that's going on in that country, among other things. And uh, does not want it to happen, among other things. And we need to pray God's mercy on his soul and the souls of his country, but also pray God's protection on God's people in Ukraine and for the progress of the gospel. So would you join me in doing that this morning? 
And uh, Pastor Mavar, would you come up as a missionary that's transitioned back home and pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and for the, their protection, and that this whole threat of hostility would be quelled and that we would know the peace of God in that, in that place. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we enter into your presence this morning burdened for our world, burdened for the opposition to the gospel. But yet, Lord, you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, Lord, we pray, we lift up your servants there in Ukraine that their voices would not be stopped, that their mission would go forth as they seek to make disciples of all nations, as you have commanded us to. Go ye into all the world and make disciples. Lord, I pray for the opposition that stands against them, that you would put a hedge round about them, that you would protect your word, that the seeds that are sown by these brothers overseas would fall on fallow ground and take root, and that you would bring forth a harvest not only here, Lord, not only in the Ukraine, but in the world. Lord, protect your servants as they go out and do your work. Lord, I pray for the opposition that stands against them. These are souls that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, even our own president is a soul who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, we know that you have your, your believers. We know you said that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the word. I pray, Lord, that you would use these messengers of yours to bring that gospel to their ears. I pray, Lord, that you would use the Holy Spirit to illumine their understanding, that they would see their need, that they would repent of their sin, and that they would be humbled and submit and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, we know you desire to do this. Help us to be faithful in praying for these, your servants. And even for our own hearts, Lord, that our hearts would be sensitive to the leading of your spirit this day as we worship you, as we listen to the preaching of your word, and most importantly, Lord, as we apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's continue to pray for these folks. First Timothy chapter 2, right? We pray for all those rulers and those in authority that God would give us a, a quiet and peaceable life. For those of you that aren't familiar with that text, there's that quiet and peaceable. 
That word quiet simply means uh, an internal rest inside the body of God's people. And peaceable refers to that rest outside of us in our communities and in our, in our states and in our countries and our politic. Two different Greek words. One means internal, one means external. So when we pray like that, that's God's will. That's God's will. Uh, not just for us, but for them. And uh, so again, Pastor Mark will be uh, preaching on prayer tonight. Uh, children's ministry, youth ministry will be in full go. And then we'll have the time of refreshment for you to take on your way uh, after the, at the 7 o'clock hour tonight. All right, let's read here uh, in the book of Job. I'm going to read a small portion of this book each week, even though we're in the introductory time period of uh, enjoying this uh, wisdom literature. Um, so we looked, we looked at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 last week. Would you join me now in verse 6? And we'll read just a little bit more. We'll take some more time by way of introduction and finish our introduction, uh, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday morning. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, we just need to remember that. This was the appearance of fallen angels with the head of those who were fallen. The Bible tells us that one-third the host of heaven, we don't know the specific number of angels that God created, but one-third of that host fell with Satan. A company of these angels who are called here the sons of men, fallen angels, have come before the throne of God. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Obviously a rhetorical question for the Lord, who knows all. And that question's given by the Lord to Satan because Satan knows who knows all. It's good for Satan to answer the question that the creator already has the answer to. Right up front, God's putting Satan in his place by asking this question. Then Satan answered Yahweh, the Lord, and said from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So I think that's a contextual matter that we need to refresh our memories. Satan did not come into God's presence with Job in his target. This is a second way that we'll study two weeks from now in which God is demonstrating his authority as infinite creator. Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? This is what Satan as a finite created now fallen being does know. He was familiar with Job. So when God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job already knew. As a matter of fact, Job knew that 
Satan knew that Job was relatively untouchable because of the garrison of protection that God had put around he and his family because he did fear God. And I think that's a great blessing to us as God-fearing people that when we pray that God would set a hedge of protection around each one of us that walks in the spirit, that God does do that. We're told from Hebrews chapter 13 that God also provides for us angels who minister to to us unaware. So apparently, even in this Old Testament context, there were unfallen angelic beings who were set about Job and his family's life for their protection. And God was protecting them as his children, as God-fearers. And Satan knew this. He goes on to say, have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? You have possessed, bless, excuse me, and the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. This is a third very clear demonstration of authority of creator versus created creator versus creature distinction god gave the authority satan could not take what god did not give only do not put forth your hand on him in other words you can touch everything that he has and who's around him but don't touch him that comes in the next chapter which we'll read next week So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And the scripture does not tell us about the company of the sons of men, whether they did or did not. We can assume that they probably did to go do that which the Lord had given them the authority to do. So we continue on in our discussion of the introduction of the book of Job. And it is lengthy. (laughs) I love to do as much background teaching as we possibly can on any book study. Those of you who are guests this morning, um, our goal is to um, teach through one book a year on a Sunday morning if we're able to conclude a book. Um, Because it's shorter, we'll head into another book. But as Pastor Mike said earlier, uh, we wrestled through the book of 2 Corinthians last year and we're just taking the book of Job here now and, and focusing on it, right? So, um, last week we discussed the importance of not misdiagnosing the purpose as to why the author of Job wrote this wisdom book. And we discussed a handful of reasons why it would be so, so tragic for us to misdiagnose the reason for this book. So I'll ask you, um, did you have an opportunity to read through the book this last week? I know a number of you did because you texted or called or you emailed me and told me you did. And you, ex- you told me uh, about your experience. And um, one person said, I felt like, Pastor, I, 
I kind of needed the patience of Job as I read through Job. And, and I completely understand that. There's a handful of reasons why, just by way of quick review, Job is a difficult book to read. Job is hard because it deals with a hard subject, suffering. And suffering at probably an extent that none of us in this room will ever, ever experience. Job suffers terribly. His wealth, his children, his health, not to mention his status in the community, are all violently snatched away. This is gut-wrenching material, and it's really not for the faint of heart. It's also hard because it doesn't necessarily give us the answers we want. We want to know why good and godly people suffer, and the book doesn't answer that. Many people have been trying to answer why do bad things happen to good people when they look at the book of Job and they go to find the answer and they come away severely disappointed because that's not the purpose for the book. So the book leaves us wondering. In fact, God's own role in Job's calamity is nothing but, at first read, kind of disconcerting. It's also hard because much of the book is in the words of Job's friends who are giving him some pretty bad advice. We all know that God ultimately declares their speech wrong. So how are you supposed to know what to believe? And if you're attempting to preach from the book, which we are, how can you build a sermon on their mistaken opinions, which take up about two-thirds of the, of, the, of the 42 chapters? It's also hard because we ask ourselves the question, what about Job himself? In the seemingly endless dialogues, Job's way of talking to God seems more, one author put it as petulant, than patient. He argues with God and complains about his situation. The book seems to be one long lament. And really, doesn't James say, count it all joy when you endure through various temptations? There's not much joy here. So how do we balance that out? As a matter of fact, God, Job asks God why 20 times in this book and God never answers any of them. So what about this Job guy that fears the Lord? Is he truly a God-fearer when he speaks to the Lord this way? And can you be a God-fearer and speak to the Lord in this way? And I think we'll find this all to be ultimately quite encouraging. Again, it's also difficult, as we said last week, because 95% of the book is poetry. Poetic literature requires great sensitivity to the art of metaphor. And those of you that know literature, not just metaphor, but simile. The nuances of God that are explained here, the various forms of Hebrew parallelism, I don't give you all these things to discourage you from reading it. 
We're asking you to read it, and we've asked you to read it a certain way, and you may have to go back and reread it more than a handful of times. And this is what we understand to be the meditation on God's word. I had a Hebrew Old Testament professor that described for us the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for meditation, as it would have been understood back then. I, I still don't know that I completely can wrap my mind around it or my head around it, but he said, picture a bear that's hunted prey and has that prey underneath its front paws and is gnawing away at that prey, right? There's certain sounds involved with that. There's a certain ugliness involved with that. There's a certain authority involved with that. But that bears going nowhere until that prey is in his tummy. That bear is going to spend a long winter somewhere, and he's not going to go into that cave hungry. So that really what, that's what the Hebrew word meditation is. It's, 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 the, it's the concentration right, on the meat of the word of God and God is ministering by way of the Holy Spirit to your hearts as you concentrate on the food of the word of God as that bear concentrates on its captured prey. It takes time. It takes effort a lot of patience for us to understand. But nonetheless, we invest in it. So, so those of you who are newer to the Lord, when you look at verses like Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth, but I will meditate on it. How often? Day and night. This is something in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that parents do with children when they wake up, when they walk by the way, when they lie down. We take the word of God and we, and we meditate upon it, we think about it, we chew on it because it's God's word. It's like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he was thankful to the Thessalonian believers because they didn't receive the word of God as it was the word of men, but as it was indeed the word of God, which effectually works in those who believe. And this is why Job says later in chapter 23 and verse 12, that he enjoyed God's word more than he did the necessary provision of God's food for him on a daily basis. And it's hard too because it's 42 long chapters. And those chapters are both repetitive and sometimes downright depressing. With Job and all that's going on with his friends arguing with one another, neither side giving an inch. It just takes patience. Reading through the book of Job does provoke certain thoughts, feelings, and words to be sure. It does make us think a lot. And I want us all to know that that's good as guided by the Spirit of God will be the better for it as his people at this local church. We're used to advertisers that are taught now that attention spans of consumers when reading is less than 10 seconds. Think about that. As we scroll through our phones, 
and we watch videos on social media platforms or enjoy ideas on Pinterest, we don't spend too long on any one topic or any one optic. There's nothing wrong with all of that, so long as you're not feeding your mind with the devil's business. But meditating on scripture for proper evaluation is just that, it's meditation, and it's more than just scrolling. Meditation is really countercultural to the way our minds are being trained to absorb information. You got to stop, and as my grandma Hartline used to say, stop and smell the spiritual roses. So we encourage you to do that in your Bible reading, and especially as we study this book. Critical thinking can be a lost discipline among God's people. I believe it's good for us to learn how to think critically. If we don't think critically, as we said last week, we will misdiagnose the theme of this book. I want to give you five principles of critical thinking that will help us understand the book of Job. It's wisdom literature. Critical thinking is necessary for our understanding of life, period, let alone the Bible, which is God's word for us, God's wisdom to us, and actually living life or doing life, right? So we've got to think properly. Here are some enemies to critical thinking. And I want you to write these down because as you as you hear them, um, I think you'll hear them two different ways. Either either you'll hear them and you won't listen, because there's a difference. Or if you listen, you won't think that maybe this applies to you because you already believe yourself to be a critical thinker. So I want you to listen to these things with open mind. These These are really enemies to critical thinking on any subject, let alone uh, this book. First enemy or roadblock to critical thinking is when we only see what we expect to see. When you approach the book of Job, most of us read it and we expect to see something. What do we expect to see? This tragedy of this guy and we expect to see God's gonna answer why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? And you can expect to see that and read it 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 again. And if you expect to see the answer to that question, you could end up misinterpreting this book to say, yeah, I found all kinds of reason why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And none of those are real reasons. A lot of other reasons why we need to be careful to not see what we just expect to see. Another roadblock to critical thinking is this. When we only see what we want to see, when we only see what we want to see. That happens in academic arenas. That happens certainly in political arenas. It can't happen in military arena. (laughs) That could be a lot of problem there. We only see what we want to see. But here, we need to make sure that we're not only seeing what we want to see. 
Number three, when we ignore what we don't see. Two-thirds, long, we've already described what it's like, tough to get through, and the tendency is to scan over that, and you see these familiar reminders about the attributes of God that we'll begin to discuss this morning and finish next week, and you say, I know that, it's there, but we can ignore what we don't see. And meditation would cause us to stop and make sure that we are not ignoring anything as much as our finite minds can help. The fourth enemy of critical thinking is skepticism. Skepticism. There are some Christians who have a hard time with this book just because they can't wrap their mind around the mind of God. They can't wrap their mind around the words of God that he speaks to Job at the end of the book where God reminds Job that all that God knows Job could not handle and it's okay for Job to just trust who God is as God relays himself to Job. Now Job says, yes, Lord, all these things are just too wonderful for me. I trust you. That's what God-fearing people do. In our language today, it's like, I know God has a plan. (laughs) I know God has a purpose. And that's how God-fearing people like you prove that you're Job-like. And that's not just tossing off, not wanting to think about the hardship you're enduring, but you truly do know God has a plan. And you don't have to know all the details as to why he's allowing you to endure this. You say, yeah, they would be too wonderful for me. I wouldn't get anyway. I probably couldn't handle it. That's what humility does. But a lot of Christians that I've talked to don't like that reality in their faith about their God. Been a part or full-time pastor for 35 years, and I've had a lot of professing believers make statements like this. God is a loving heavenly father. He would not allow, let alone tell Satan to do that. I believe I'm in Christ, I believe I'm saved, I believe I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And somehow they're able to marginalize the work of Christ and the work of Spirit away from the person of God. Because they can't wrap their mind around what God allowed tragically to occur in their own life. And that's hard. But skepticism, even about God himself, is certainly a roadblock to critical thinking. And then fifth and finally, groupthink or conformity can be a roadblock to critical thinking about this book. Most authors out there would probably tell you that this book is about suffering. That's groupthink, that's conformity. Many of us have probably been in that group think tank all of our lives. And what we're asking you to do is certainly it's, it's It has suffering in it. We've read part of it. We'll read the rest of it next week in the the prologue. But we'll find out that the majority of its messaging is certainly not about suffering or the answers to suffering. So where do we go about finding what its theme is? Okay, 
We'll dive into this for about five minutes and let you go home. Right? And we'll wrap it up next week. The names of God are plenty. The use of the various names of God in the book of Job are plenty. We talked about that a little bit last week. As a matter of fact, in Job's speech, chapters 9 and 10, there's 70 references to God in 55 verses, both names and personal pronouns. In Zophar's reply in chapter 11, 12 references to God in 20 verses. And in Job's reply in chapter 12 and 13, 69 references to God in 75 verses. Throughout the debate between Job and his friends about Job's suffering, they talk way more about God than they do suffering. So when you read Job and how he suffered, as we continue to do this morning, certainly it would be easy to see how many have determined that this wisdom literature is a book about the same. Furthermore, if we focus on the suffering and try to find resolution to its ending, as we've already said, and its ending in our life in particular, and our enduring through it, we'll have certainly found a sub-theme, but be left disappointed at the end. One author said, sometimes the Lord has to take drastic measures to get people to talk about him seriously and to seek him in earnest. And that's really what God's doing here. Even to someone who fears him. We have people in our auditorium this morning who are going through sovereign suffering. Threatening the very life that they're living. People in our auditorium that have no promise that They'll be with us by even Christmas time. And they're God fearers. These are sweet people that I know want to know the theme of this book. These are sweet people that know that sometimes the Lord even takes drastic measures of the ones who fear Him to get them to even more earnestly seek Him. Another author said to move away from our myopic obsession with our circumstances to something and someone much bigger outside ourselves and over our circumstances is necessary for all of us to do, especially those of us who are enduring heavier degrees of suffering. He goes on to say Job's suffering is the occasion for communicating a larger spiritual issue than the problem of personal pain. Ellison quotes Stevenson when he says, the book does not set out to answer the problem of suffering, but to proclaim a God so great that no answer is needed, for it would transcend the finite mind if given. The book will talk some about how we suffer, but we'll talk very little about why we suffer. 
We come closer to the theme of the book of Job if we move past why we suffer to how we respond to suffering. And how we respond has everything to do with how we know God. The book ends by showing us Job's response. He's content, he's patient, he's at peace, and he's submitted. But why should we respond to adversity the way Job did in the end? And how he wrestled through it the way he did. Well, we're getting closer to understanding the purpose for this book. Our faith relationship to a God who is sovereign, always just, and unfailingly compassionate despite all contrary appearances, and his right to allow us to suffer without compromising any of his attributes is the underlying theme of this book. I'll read that again. Our faith relationship to a God who is sovereign, always just, and unfailingly compassionate, despite all contrary appearances, and his right to allow us to suffer without compromising any of his attributes is the underlying theme of this book. Throughout the chapters of dialogue, Till the epilogue, where we find God's divine response, the Lord is seeking a delicate balance with Job. He seeks to redirect Job's energies without crushing him. One author said, if the Lord is too harsh, he would appear to endorse the views of Job's friends of retribution theology. If the Lord is too soft, then Job will not hear what is needed. So both God's words and his appearance provide a platform from which we can view the book as a whole, end quote. Anyone that's approaching the book of of this wisdom book with, with wisdom, if you read them side by side, and I've got quite a few, I've got a couple dissertations, I've got a couple seminary um, uh, PhD Uh, classroom works on this, some THMs, I've got some commentaries, I've got some study materials, and the people who really understand the purpose of this book all sound amazingly familiar with one another. And that last quote I just read to you resonates with so many good and godly people who have dug the truth of this book within its time and offered its application to us, and I believe, I believe they're correct. When you read the book of Job last week, did you happen to underline or notice the various names for God when you read it? Names like Jehovah, Lord, Almighty, Holy One, Redeemer, Judge, Maker, Watcher of Men. These names appear over 180 times in 42 chapters. Maybe you happen to notice God's attributes along the way as well. Whether they're stated by his friends that were wrong, stated by Job, or even reminded to Job and his friends by God himself. For those of you who may be newer in your walk with Christ, you may not be familiar with the attributes of God. The attributes of God are those virtues of his person, and his character. 
The attributes of God are often divided up into two portions or two sections, if you will, two columns. The attributes of his greatness and the attributes of his goodness. Some of you may have sat in Bible doctrines classrooms and, and you heard of them defined differently. Next week, what I want to do is I just want to go through and preach a line of the, of the attributes of God through the whole book. And I think it would be good for us to remind us who our God is in his person and in his character and in his faith development, our faith development as a people via his person and his character. I think it would be good for us to, to reattach or continue to attach our minds and our hearts to that theological clothesline through the whole book. Before we dive into the, the prologue together. So we'll look forward to that next week, okay? All right, God bless you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for your patience with us. Lord, I think about your, your patience with me. And I'm amazed that those who pastor with me, those who shepherd with me, those who lead with me, those who worship with me are patient with me. I thank you, Lord, that they speak into my life. I thank you, Lord, that they're iron sharpening iron. I thank you, Lord, that they convict where I need conviction, but yet they come alongside as lovers of my soul and they pick me up and they carry me forward and they keep me on the straight and narrow. And Lord, they do that. We do that for one another because we fear you. And the more we know you, the more we'll know how you seek to develop the gift of faith that you've given to us in Christ as we are just broken pots of clay that have this glorious reality within us by your grace. Help us, Lord, to Know what it means to have our faith grown because we know the God of our faith regardless of our circumstances. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Love you all, see you at 6 p.m.